Welcome to the Open House podcast site, available at openhousecommunity.com.au. You don't need me to tell you that we're living in the midst of huge worldwide economic upheaval. Don't ever believe that just because Australia is in so many ways doing much better than the rest of the world, that the chill winds of all this turmoil won't be more and more impacting us. Lots of people are asking pretty hard questions about a broken world economic system, certainly the one that's fed and dominated the West over the last couple of centuries. And as those hard questions are being asked, some interesting alternatives are appearing on the radar. One of them is what's called Sabbath economics. It's been put out there by a Californian theologian, social activist and teacher, Ched Myers. I actually think it's very timely that we explore his thinking on Open House. Ched Myers, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me on, Lee. It's great to have you here. Thanks, Ched. How are you reflecting on the economic turmoil the world is experiencing at the moment? Well, Lee, this isn't a theoretical issue for us here in uh, the U.S. and not least in California. Uh, the economic recession of the last four years has hit us very, very hard. Right in my immediate neighborhood, there are uh, more than a dozen homes that have been foreclosed upon. Many of the local businesses are being shuttered. Uh, folks are out of work. Uh, it's a it's a really tough environment, has been a tough environment, uh, and I think that's one of the reasons why we've seen this uh, Occupy movement over the last year uh, as Americans and people indeed all, all around the world are finally finding their voice to try to change the public conversation around economics. Which is what you're seeking to do. Can it be fixed as it is, do you think? <laughs> well, uh, that's, of course, anybody's guess. Uh, but one thing is for sure, uh, we can't fix anything unless we have a proper diagnosis. And I think uh, if, if, we, if we don't think the system is broken, then, of course, we are not going to be set about trying to fix it. Uh, even Jesus of Nazareth said as much when he said, you know, the, it, you, you won't be looking for a physician if you're not, uh, if you're not conscious that you're sick. And so, uh, you know, I think those of us who are trying to assess the, uh, both the moral and functional character of this economy from the bottom up rather than from the top down, that is to, to see the health of the economy from the perspective of the unemployed and the homeless and uh, people who are on the margins, uh, that persuades us that it's broken enough that we've got to be looking for solutions. And to do that, some of us are trying to go to the, the roots of the crisis as we, as we see it. A few years ago, there was a, an economist by the name of William Greider, and uh, he wrote a, a book in 2004 called The Soul of Capitalism, Opening Paths to a Moral Economy. And in that book, Greider, who's no flaming uh, radical, he's very much a mainstream economist, uh, had this to say. He said, um, the operating principles of capitalism have become dangerously obsolete. The house of economics is due for major renovation, if not a complete teardown. We need a new narrative, because as it presently functions, capitalism encourages human pathology, embodying irresponsibility as a central requirement in its operating routines. And Lee, for me as a theologian, this was, a, uh, this was really a, a welcome invitation to come to the table with 
an alternative narrative. That's what Greider is calling for, a different economic story. And I actually think that in our uh, scriptures, we, we have such an alternative economic story, and that's why I've become so interested in what I call Sabbath economics. Yes, before we explore the detail of Sabbath economics, you mentioned before the importance of a diagnosis. From your deep thinking on this, what's your diagnosis about why the system is as it is now? Well, you know, the global economy uh, to the local economy is a complex matter, uh, and there are no simple sound bites. But if I had to boil down a diagnosis, I would say this, and this is really paraphrasing a number of thoughtful economic philosophers dating back to the late 19th century. One in particular, uh, Alfred Tennies, a German sociologist who was already seeing in the late 19th century with the rise of the industrial um, economy and, and the complete transformation of both Europe and North America by, the, uh, by industrialization, Tunney said the problem here is the emerging capitalist society is tearing apart the social fabric. It is a situation in which this economy is tearing apart everything that holds human social relationships together. Community, he said, is that alternative force which holds together human beings despite everything that would pull them apart. So my question and my diagnosis would be, how can we try to act and think uh, and build economically in a way that puts capital at the service of community rather than sacrificing community to the aggregation of capital, which unfortunately is what our modern economy is tending to do. And at the heart of that is a matter of the human heart, really. The human character and very being. We are people who are uh, meant to be in relationship, in relationship with each other, in relationship with the, the material creation, and, with, and in relationship with the divine. Uh, unfortunately, in our economy, in the culture of our, our economy, uh, everything tends to press for us being only in relationship with money or with work so as to earn money. And that's why we're seeing the unraveling of so much that uh, makes us human in, uh, in the modern society. And that's true both for poor people who uh, do not have enough to live a human life. But it's also true for the affluent who suffer from what... Uh, we started calling here in the U.S. some years ago the, the disease of affluenza. Their lives also are becoming less and less human and humane, even as uh, they disenfranchise others. We're seeing rampant addiction and uh, compulsion among the very wealthy. So uh, it's, it's really uh, this economy is not good for either uh, either dramatic end of the spectrum. So you're proposing, as we said, Sabbath Economics. It goes back to a few concepts from the Bible's Old Testament, concepts like uh, Sabbath day, Sabbath year, and the year of Jubilee. Can you take us through the context of each of those concepts as they first appeared in the Old Testament? For most folk, the, the phrase Sabbath economics seems a bit strange, um, unusual. The reason why we use that phrase is to try to uh, emphasize something that's, by and large, been overlooked or uh, sidelined in both Jewish and Christian theology. Um, 
really over the last several hundred years as our religious communities have tended to ride shotgun with the juggernaut of uh, capitalist development. And what we're overlooking is that in some of our oldest texts, we have a sort of catechism on how to be a free and just people. And the most primal catechism we find is way back in the book of Exodus. The book of Exodus, of course, is the story of Hebrew slaves under the boot of Pharaoh in Egypt. But of course, those slaves stage a walkout, right? They, they go into the wilderness, they journey toward freedom, but the very first lesson that they are given in the wilderness, on the other side of their experience of slavery, turns out to be an economic lesson. We find it in the book of Exodus chapter 16, in the fabled story of the manna. Now, the manna in the wilderness is uh, treated by most modern uh, Christians and Jews as a, a sort of a, uh, a, f- a fairy tale where God magically rains down bread from heaven to um, help the starving people in the wilderness. But that's not what that story actually says. It's, uh, it's not uh, a story, it's not a morality tale to teach us to trust in the miraculous power of God. In fact, it says very clearly in Exodus 16, 4, I will provide food for my people in order to test to see whether they will follow my instructions. So really the focus of the story is the instructions given. And these instructions turn out to be um, fundamental for the building of an alternative economic story. The instructions are threefold. Number one, no one is supposed to gather the gift of manna um, in disproportionate ways. That is, if someone gathers more, they're not supposed to gather too much. And if someone gathers less, the community is supposed to make sure they've gathered enough. So the first principle is make sure that people aren't too rich and too poor. The second principle right on the heels of that in Exodus 16 is the principle of non-accumulation. That's the famous phrase where if you try to store up the manna, it will turn to worms. Uh, This is an archetypal idea in which the gift is supposed to circulate rather than concentrating in a few hands. Uh, And the third principle is the principle of Sabbath. Right on the heels of the first two principles, Moses tells the people on the seventh day, you need to stop gathering, stop working, so you can remember that life is, in fact, a gift. This suggests um, that there should be limits on human production and consumption. Now, if you think about it, Lee, these three principles are diametrically opposed to the three characteristics of our modern economy. In our modern economy, you can't be too rich, uh, and we also have an infinite tolerance for poverty. Uh, We also uh, define wealth by accumulation, and of course, we're all working too hard and we don't seem to know limits. So what we have in these old stories, uh, I think, is a sort of an economic wisdom whose time has come again. I mentioned also the concept of Sabbath year and that year of Jubilee. That's part of the Sabbath economics that you're proposing as well. Yeah, it sure is. 
proceeding out of these primal instructions um, early on in the Hebrew Bible, uh, this tradition of uh, what I'm calling Sabbath economics is spun out in a variety of different ways, all of which, interestingly, have Sabbath symbolism attached to them. So, for example, in the seventh year, Israel was supposed to uh, deconstruct the debt burden of individuals who had fallen uh, into indebtedness, um, relieving people of debt so that they don't they didn't become structurally uh, poor. Uh, and then there's um, the notion of the gleaner's rights, that in every field, at every harvest, the poor have a right to the edges of the field. Um, that's not charity, that's justice, that's the gift belonging to everyone. Uh, and of course, the, the culmination of this vision is the so-called Jubilee legislation in Leviticus 25, which is a super Sabbath, a seven times seven years on the 50th year, of course, the, the Yoval, the, the ram's horn is blown and debts are released, slaves are freed, and the homeless are returned uh, to their rightful inheritance. It's a radical vision, and it's no wonder that these sorts of traditions have been uh, silenced or marginalized or shrugged off by our modern religious traditions, but they haven't been forgotten by everyone. There have been popular social movements century after century who have taken these visions and been inspired to build societies uh, that are more just. From the diggers and levelers of 18th century early industrial England to uh, the abolitionist movement of slavery in the United States in the 19th century, to the civil rights movement in the 20th century, all of whom appealed to these um, ancient visions. Um, so we're, we, we feel like there's still a conversation to be had, that this narrative still has something to teach modern people about how to, um, how to act justly in an economy uh, that really knows no limits. On Open House, we're with Ched Myers, Speaking about Sabbath economics, Ched, many of Jesus' parables and much of what he had to say about living in this world had an economic edge, and he was very critical of the exploitation of the poor. Uh, I couldn't say it better myself. Um, Jesus, of course, was one of the uh, early people to take up this vision. Of course, before him were the 8th, 8th century Hebrew prophets, such as Amos and Hosea and Isaiah and Jeremiah, who took this fierce commitment to social justice and brought it uh, in their context, both to the leaders and to the people. Jesus of Nazareth in the first century was doing the same thing, acting in that prophetic tradition, drawing on those old Jubilee visions. So in Luke's Gospel, his very first sermon in Nazareth is uh, portrayed essentially as <clears throat> the proclamation of a new Jubilee where he uh, preaches out of Isaiah 61. Uh, and as you say, his, his parables are constantly uh, challenging the rich, um, trying to inspire the poor, uh, and his actions as well. Uh, Jesus was a friend of poor people. Uh, he was a critic of wealthy and powerful people. But in the end, his vision was for a beloved community in which everyone had enough most dramatically illustrated by his parables of the banquet 
in uh, Luke chapter 14, in which the vision is for everyone to have a seat at the table uh, and to feast together as community. That's, of course, a, a vision that he took from Isaiah. So really from beginning to end in the scriptures, uh, we get this, this constant refrain that the very um, moral character of human society will be judged by how equitably the gifts of creation are being divided and distributed among all people. That's true uh, in the Hebrew Bible, in, in Torah, and in the prophets. It's true in the, the Gospels. It's even true in Paul the Apostle and the early church. It's really only in the last three or four hundred years that we have, um, uh, be, because we've, we've, we as, as Christian people have adopted wholesale the narrative of modern capitalism, we've forgotten that actually our roots are in this other story, this, indeed this other economic cosmology. And we think, given the current crisis, um, that it's time for our churches to rehabilitate the roots of our vision in order to reanimate our political and economic imagination. The good news uh, is that there are people all over, uh, all over the world doing this, including people in Australia. And uh, uh, I'd, I'd love to share just a, a couple of uh, uh, resources of people in Australia who have adopted this Sabbath economics vision and who are working there uh, locally in this context. Yes, can you explore how that's actually working in practice? Because all of what you say is absolutely true, and the arguments are compelling, and yet I'm driven to think, well, how does this work? Well, there are just so many fronts for us to be working on, and we in our work and uh, thousands of other people um, in the faith communities are um, doing things such as standing alongside workers uh, and advocating and organizing for living wage w legislation. Um, there are people who are uh, working to house homeless folk, uh, running soup kitchens. There's, um, there's a community-supported agriculture movement in which uh, rural producers and urban consumers are coming together in a cooperative fashion. All of these are alternative kinds of economies that are sort of operating in the shell of the larger economy. Uh, working particularly with those who are left out of the bigger economy. One of the most interesting parts of the Occupy movement, in my opinion, particularly here in North America, was the Move Your Money strategy, which we have been advocating for years, in which people will take their money out of corporate banks and uh, instead patronize um, local community credit unions and community development financial institutions whose mission is to make capital available to people who are poor precisely because they don't have access to capital. So many of us um, long ago moved our savings accounts, whatever investments we have, um, from Wall Street uh, to Main Street using these community development financial institutions. This is a movement that's going on uh, worldwide. Uh, so there are many, many ways in which um, people, and particularly churches, are trying to be not only a voice, but a model of an alternative. Uh, people who are interested in uh, following up on some of this Sabbath economics theology can find our publications through the Kentigern online bookstore in Australia. That's http 
bookstore.tentigern, K-E-N-T-I-G-E-R-N.com. And uh, we're really pleased that the, the practical household covenant work, which we're involved in, which involves seven areas in which um, people of faith can uh, look at how to change our practices to, as it were, move from a mammon consciousness to a mana consciousness. Uh, we've developed this household covenant, uh, and it, it involves how we handle our money, how we handle our work, our environmental footprint, and so on. And that's been specifically adapted to the Australian context by uh, a colleague by the name of Jonathan Cornford, uh, and his website, his organization is called Managum, and it's at www.managum.org.au. We'll put those links up on our Open House Community Facebook page. So it seems to me that you're not really arguing for an entire deconstruction of the entire economic, political, and ultimately personal system. This, this is to be more a grassroots movement. I, I guess what I'd say, Lee, is that I think ultimately we have to look for structural and systemic change. Absolutely. Um, we've got to pass laws. We've got to um, deal with the tax structures. We've got to deal with our governmental policies. We've got to rein in corporations. All of things, these things have to happen at the political and policy level. At the same time, um, we've got to model different ways of being from the ground up. I don't believe that change ultimately is going to come from the top down. I think change is going to come uh, when enough people at the grassroots demand it. So we, we sort of operate in the tradition of the Catholic Worker Movement, uh, whose founder, Dorothy Day, said our job is to build a new world in the shell of the old. So even as we await broader structural change, we should be modeling alternative behavior on the ground where we are. And I think that's particularly truly for people of faith and communities of faith. We can't just ask the government to do the right thing. We've got to model the right thing in our own behavior, both as individuals and as communities. Let me ask you perhaps a challenging question to end with. If there was one thing that I could do tomorrow, so I consider this overnight and I think, yes, I'd like to move towards this kind of concept. If there was one thing that I could do tomorrow, what would you suggest that would be to kick this off? Well, I think the best tool that we've tried to develop is this uh, household Sabbath economics covenant, because I think for those of us in our societies, we tend to feel like the economy is something out there. It's abstract. Uh, we don't have the power to do anything about it. And yet every day we make economic decisions about what we do with our money, with our savings, with our work. The household uh, Sabbath economics covenant was specifically developed with a series of disciplines that um, the average person can adopt. And again, through um, Managum there in Australia, this has been adopted to the Australian context. I would recommend that someone um, uh, get a hold of this covenant and form a small group of people, friends, family, who want to sit down and uh, figure out what concrete changes to make. After that, I'd say the most single most important thing that an individual can do is figure out what we're doing with our surplus capital. Where are our savings lodged? Where are our investments? Are they moral investments or are they part of the problem? And if they're part of the problem, then we have both the right and the responsibility to move that money and make sure that money is 
uh, about justice and about equity for those who are marginalized. So there are very practical things we can do tomorrow. Thousands of people around the, this country and around the world are taking those steps. Uh, and I, I, I consider this, uh, as Dickens said, both the, the worst of times and the best of times. Uh, in many ways, economically, it's the worst of times, but there's incredible creativity and courage that people are exhibiting, and it's our hope that our, our churches and synagogues can be on the forefront of that uh, of reigniting our moral imagination. What a world it would be. It's been a a very thought-provoking conversation, a most enjoyable one. Ched Myers, thank you so much indeed for joining us on Open House. Thank you, Lee. We hope you enjoyed this Open House podcast. Thanks to Christian Super and Real World Technology Solutions. To hear more from Open House, visit openhousecommunity.com.au.